When you think about organized crime, it's not intuitive that Africa would be a focus. It's not a term or a concept that many necessarily associate with Africa. But from the illegal wildlife trade to human smuggling and oil theft, to blood diamonds, piracy and drug smuggling, Africa is increasingly becoming webbed into the global illicit economy. In this new podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we're going to be examining the flows of illicit commodities, but also looking at the enabling environment that has made Africa vulnerable to the growth of organized crime. We'll be looking at corruption, illicit financial flows, gangs, the role of foreign corporations, and the political economy of crime. Every two weeks, we'll be drawing on our civil society observatories for North, South, East, and West Africa to get a feel for how organized crime is impacting some of the world and the continent's emerging trends and contemporary events. You'll hear from GI staff, international experts, also our civil society networks, partners, and maybe from people working in illicit economies themselves. With more than 150 network members and contacts across the continent, this podcast will be an unparalleled look at the drivers of Africa's illicit economy. Welcome to the first episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, exploring organized crime on the African continent by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. For this first episode, we start in North Africa and the Sahel, where we will give you a comprehensive overview of the major illicit markets in the region, before in future episodes taking a more in-depth look at the nuances within the illicit economy in Africa. Chad and Niger's strict measures to restrict movement during COVID-19 have not been a deterrent for migrants and smugglers. Migrant trafficking has continued despite travel restrictions with significant consequences. On April 2nd, a group of 250 migrants were abandoned by smugglers on the Niger-Libya border. In response to the continuous flow of migrants who've managed to traverse border patrols, Algeria has also begun to expel undocumented workers at the Nigerian border. These expulsions reflect a hardening attitude toward immigrants in the Sahel in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. Before being repatriated, migrants are first detained at one of four transit centers in northern Niger at camps in Asamaka and Arlet. In recent weeks, these transit centers have become overcrowded epicenters of unrest. In one case in mid-April, a group of migrants at the Arlet camp staged a protest and looted an international organization for migration shop, citing poor living conditions.
too many people when they imagine human smuggling or illegal migration, picture a large group of African people on a boat in the Mediterranean trying to get to Europe. But there's obviously a lot more context to it than that. Alexandra Bish is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. For migration across the Mediterranean, as you've referred to, migrants who go on boats, most of them in the past five years have gone through the central Mediterranean route, through the countries of Libya, Niger, and the countries where they come from are countries across West Africa, mostly. A migrant might leave his country of origin for multiple reasons, economic in many cases, and eventually travel to Niger, where he or she will encounter a smuggler who will help them transit the desert and go on to Libya, where they will find other smugglers who will help them go across the Mediterranean. What are conditions like on this journey in terms of the vehicles they travel in and the hours they spend on the road? I think it's important to remind that in the past five years, migrant smuggling has been criminalized in, in one of the key transit countries, Niger. And, and since then, the migrant smuggling, which was a very legitimate practice before the transportation of migrants from Niger to Libya was very common, was criminalized and went underground. And suddenly, we've got a practice that is very clandestine and that is very dangerous for migrants because smugglers took increasingly clandestine routes through the desert, which were more remote and more subject to vehicle breakdowns. So what we've seen in the past five years is an increase in, in the number of of migrant deaths through the desert. But there are also more dangers the closer you get to Libya. For instance, a lot of migrants are subject to actually trafficking. We hear the phrase that the lines between smuggling and trafficking blur once migrants reach Libya. And that's because there are some actors present in, in southern Libya who really profit from migrants and try to get as much money as they can through torture and calling their families and demanding money. What we've seen in the past few years has been almost what, what we could term a commodification of migrants. Coming to the contemporary situation that the world finds itself in with COVID-19, how have the restrictions impacted the smuggling of people in countries like Niger? We can really describe chronologically maybe two different phases. The first was what we saw from late March was a phase of disruption for most migrant smugglers. So there were a number of restrictions on travels within Niger that were implemented and later relaxed in mid-April, but the borders were closed and so it made it more difficult for migrants to arrive. But the most significant impact was what happened at the Libyan border, so north of Niger, where Libyan Tebu militias were stopping in late March the arrival of, of migrants by intercepting migrant convoys, 
And finally, on the other border, which is very important too, Algerian security forces also increased their presence. And for the same reasons as the Tebu militias, to stop the spread of the virus. And so they've got much more sophisticated presence. So the effect of all these security presence has been very strong in deterring smuggling activities, at least initially. And that's why from mid-April to early May, what we've really seen is a, a period of adaptation. Smugglers have, have adapted their activities in a number of ways towards Libya, They've changed their routes, so they've adopted much more remote routes than, than even before. Going through areas that are very dangerous, sometimes their routes coincide with those taken by drug traffickers and arms traffickers, which means that they are vulnerable to attacks because these high-value convoys are often the subject of attacks by armed bandits looking to steal Others are actually giving up on the practice temporarily and going more into fuel smuggling, gold mining. So some are actually going to buy subsidized fuel in Libya and bringing it to gold mines within Niger and northern Chad. And others are actually just starting a gold mining operation in some of these gold mines that have seen increasing popularity in the past two months. I think what we're looking to see in the next few months on the smuggler side is whether this period of adaptation is going to transform into a period of consolidation. So are some of these smugglers who have taken a risk and, and started to perhaps invest in a gold site, perhaps realize that they're making actually more profits in fuel smuggling? Are they going to stick to these jobs? Are we going to see real structural shifts? Or is everything going to go back to normal? That was Alexandra Bish, a senior analyst here at the GI. If smuggled migrants manage to make it to Libya, they face a new set of obstacles. From police to roving border militias, all with an interest in taking advantage of growing instability and chaos to extort smugglers and migrants on their journey. Last week, 30 migrants were abducted, tortured to extract ransom, and at least 24 killed by traffickers in Libya while making the long journey across the desert to find work. So what is the scale of the COVID-19 pandemic in Libya at the moment? And is there concern that it might worsen? Mark Mikhailov is the director of the North Africa and Sahel Observatory at the Global Initiative. But first, Rebecca Murray, a senior analyst at the GI. The actual cases of COVID at the moment in Libya have not been huge in contrast to neighboring countries. So there have been 75 cases so far and three deaths. Where the most COVID cases have been is Tripoli by far, then followed by Misrata because it has the one open airport in the West, which is now since closed due to the war, and then followed by Benghazi. In terms of the health infrastructure, though, this is alarmingly ill-prepared to treat COVID patients. And I think that's where uh, the problem lies, exacerbated by all-out war in the capital, 
as of till very recent, when the Libyan Arab forces, backed by Heftar, withdrew to the oil crescent area. Basically, we're seeing a few problems compounded. We've got the COVID crisis and we've got war. And then on top of that restriction of movement and violence. Mark, how do these COVID restrictions impact these smuggling networks, particularly with regards to the key routes going from the south into the north or around Libya? Are these routes still accessible or are smugglers and migrants having to improvise? There is movement. So this is one of the areas we've, we've been monitoring closely and on which we're, we're still developing an assessment. Like in the first reaction to the COVID crisis, we saw everything grind to a halt, basically, particularly in respect to the movement from the Sahel into Libya and from the southern areas into the northern areas, not so much in the, in the coastal departures. However, over the past weeks, we've seen adaptation. So smugglers trying to alter their, their modus operandi, routes, trying to find new ways to move around, new agreements. This is typical of what we've seen in our analysis over the years. This is the, the point of having a smuggler and recruiting a smuggler, actually, to help navigate restrictions. However, still, overall, I would say the situation has impinged on the movement of migrants and, and the operations of smugglers. At first, as I said, there was a, a different situation in the coastal areas where we had seen sustained activity of migrants departing from Libya. Not in huge numbers, so, so there has been a lot of press over recent weeks suggesting that we're seeing an anomalous situation. And that was partly fueled by what I would say is a misinterpretation of the data. A lot of commentators and, and even countries, actually, Malta and Italy, have been citing the fact that if you look at the first three months of 2020 and you compare the rate of departures from Libya to the first three months of 2019, you will see a huge increase in 2020. The problem with that is that in April of last year, April 2019, a war started in Libya, a battle for Tripoli, essentially, for the capital. So a very engaging, all-encompassing, multi-level war that has had significant re repercussions. When that war started, we saw that the pattern of departures had risen slightly and more or less remained sustained after that point. And if you look at the departure rate in the past three months and compare it to the past six months, say, for instance, you will see that it's more or less within the same range. So there wasn't really a, an increase in departures. What there was in the initial reaction to COVID in particular was a decrease in activity by the Libyan Coast Guard and therefore fewer migrants being intercepted and brought back to Libya. And as a result, that left many more migrant boats to push forward and in some cases remain stranded in the central Mediterranean waiting for rescue. Rebecca, what impact has the war in Libya had on migrants and the citizens in Tripoli? So the war has had a huge impact. One, we can point out there's been an oil embargo. So there's been very little in terms of refined fuel. There's also been the turning off of water, which is mass collective punishment for mostly uh, residents of Tripoli. There has been huge electricity cuts, very high prices because of all of this, as well as the closure of borders due to COVID. And then for displaced Libyans, there have been about 100,000 and displaced from the front lines, which is mostly Tripoli's southern suburbs. Most go to relatives' homes, but the ones who cannot 
go there or cannot afford to are usually kept in shelters that are run by municipalities. And the last time I visited, again in March, I went to one shelter in Abu Salim, which is an area near the front line. People in there, displaced families in there, were really expressing concern that they had been displaced for one year. They were without food, electricity, and basic living conditions that were adequate and very afraid of being forgotten. There are also displaced people in Misrata, of course, because one of the reasons is that there is an airport near there that was mostly open until it closed due to COVID. What's the situation in urban areas? In the urban areas so far, there are about 50,000 refugees and asylum seekers that have been registered with UNHCR. Overall, they're estimated hundreds of thousands of migrants within Libya itself, though it's very hard, if not impossible, (laughs) to count exact numbers. And then, of course, there have been about 3,500 migrants that have been returned from the sea by the Libyan Coast Guard. In the actual detention centers themselves, there is under 3,000 For migrants who are living in the streets, especially in Tripoli, it's been very hazardous due to the ongoing war, due to the COVID curfew as well. A lot of the streets are empty, though, however, armed groups do roam in these streets as well as there are flash checkpoints in places. So there's a huge risk of being picked up and taken to a local police station or taken and kidnapped for ransom. There has been extreme lack of work, if none at all. And this is compounded by a huge stigma towards migrants at the moment who are viewed as perhaps virus carriers by Libyans. And places to stay are are virtually non-existent at the moment. And Mark, coming back to you, considering the current conditions in which migrants now find themselves, are they still attempting to cross the Mediterranean? The rate of departures is, is more or less consistent with what we've seen in the past months. Over the past weeks, we've seen more activity by the Libyan Coast Guard, so more migrants being intercepted and returned back to Libya. But the demand for departures remains precisely, I would say, as a result of the worsening conditions in Libya. In fact, we assess that over the medium term, although we don't anticipate that there's going to be some huge spike in the short term in terms of the number of migrants wanting to leave Libya, because of these restrictions. In the medium term, this, this will probably will not be sustained. And right now, there are many drivers pushing migrants out of Libya. So we would expect that in the medium term, we, we might see an increase in the number of people wanting to leave. And how might this affect things in a post-COVID context? One of the things that the COVID crisis has changed has been the, the attitude of European countries. So Malta and Italy, which are recipients of the migrants who depart from Libya, have declared their ports closed. At first, they weren't receiving any migrants. Then some accommodation was done. Malta has, both countries actually have accommodated some of the migrants rescued onto vessels. In the case of Malta, there are some migrants who have been on these vessels for more than four weeks, which is uh, less than ideal to be spending that amount of time at sea. What has been Italy and Malta's response been in all of this? Both countries have been complaining that even before the COVID crisis, there was reluctance on the part of their European counterparts, other member states, to share the burden, so to speak, and take an allocation of migrants rescued in the central Mediterranean. Post-COVID, this has become worse. How does this impact on the commitments the European member states made to Libya? From Libya right now, 
there are essentially three ways to leave. One of them is irregular, so crossing the central Mediterranean or crossing the border of a, a neighboring country and with the help of smugglers and traffickers. And the other two ways are through voluntary humanitarian return, which is a voluntary program that allows migrants who want to leave Libya to be able to be returned to their country with the expenses being paid for through this program, and resettlement. The resettlement program being open to asylum seekers and potential refugees who are assessed to be deserving of protection by the UNHCR, and then on that basis being placed on a list evacuated from Libya and taken to processing centers in Niger, in Rwanda, and then from there being resettled to European member states or elsewhere. This mechanism has not been working. It wasn't working before the COVID crisis, and we anticipate that it's going to be slowed down even further after the COVID crisis, with no possibility, to, no legal possibility to leave Libya at a point in time when the situation is worsening for migrants, the likeliness is that this is going to create more push factors, pushing more migrants into the hands of smugglers and traffickers. That was Mark Mikalev, the director of the North Africa and Sahel Observatory, and Rebecca Murray, a senior analyst at the Global Initiative. Whereas people smugglers in Chad and Niger are adopting new methods to move people north of Libya, Smugglers in the Maghreb face new challenges in moving drugs. Political instability and an increasingly difficult economic situation in the wake of COVID-19 may offer new opportunities for drug traffickers in the region. The Maghreb has been in the smuggling trade for generations. Traditionally, the region has been a hotspot of cannabis production for the European market and increasingly a passageway for cocaine and psychotropic pills headed to Europe. So what is the history of drug production and smuggling in the region? Matt Herbert is a senior analyst with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I think we need to first of all realize that drug production in the Maghreb is something that significantly predates the current era. I mean, this goes back hundreds of years throughout the region, with cannabis being the, the drug that's most commonly grown and in many cases was most commonly used. Now, in the more recent era after decolonization, after the, the independence of Morocco, of Algeria, of Tunisia, drug production in North Africa contracted. So rather than being very broadly spread across uh, those three countries, it really came to be concentrated in the reef mountains of northern Morocco. And cannabis that was grown there was not only grown for the local market, but also for the European market. And this is something that really started to supercharge the industry back in the 1960s and 1970s as European demand for drugs surged. So cannabis was grown and then trafficked largely in an ad hoc way directly across the Straits of Gibraltar, across the Alborn Sea by individuals just heading north or transiting from Europe to Morocco, buying drugs and then moving back. It wasn't particularly well structured, nor did it really need to be. And how did authorities react to the surge in production? The sanctions applied against drug production and drug trafficking at the time were extremely minimal. And if you look at the, the degree of diligence by both Moroccan and European authorities on interdicting traffickers, it wasn't a particularly high priority at that point. Though certainly it started to become one later on. And this is when you started to see the emergence of more professionalized trafficking groups. 
as the degree of border security that existed between Morocco and Spain started to increase. And so that's when you had this move to create specialized smuggling networks. Individuals, oftentimes Moroccan, but also occasionally including a variety of different Europeans that would be involved in either moving drugs north via speedboat or other rapid craft that could evade law enforcement personnel in that area, or in some cases, more creative options. So for example, the utilization of helicopters going very fast and low at night to be able to shuttle drugs between the two regions. And that professionalization started to, to shift into the rest of the region. How high does the corruption go in terms of the corridors of power in the Maghreb? I think that from the court cases we've seen, it certainly goes up to high-level law enforcement officials, administrators, relatives of those in power. There's no compelling evidence that it extends directly up to top-level officials in any state. Rather, it's more opportunism by those that are most directly placed to be able to enforce sanction on these trafficking networks or producers, such as law enforcement officials, or who can leverage their connections into the corridors of powers and the, the part of relatives that are the ones that seem to be most susceptible or most at risk of being targeted by these trafficking networks for corrupt engagement. Are these drugs destined for local markets or are they simply diverted on their path through the region to Europe? So if you look at the diverted pharmaceuticals, those are largely trafficked to the Maghreb were diverted from pharmacies in the Maghreb for use in the Maghreb. Very little actually leaves the region, really. The only significant outflow that we see is tramadol going from Libya into Egypt and in some cases on from Egypt into Gaza. Whereas if you look at cocaine, for example, overwhelmingly cocaine moved into North Africa is destined for other markets. It's destined primarily for Europe, but there's certainly also some that's moved on to the Persian Gulf. But the problem is how larger international drug trafficking organizations often pay their co-collaborators. And this is something called PILOF. So rather than paying local collaborators in places such as Morocco or Algeria or Tunisia in cash, they pay them in kind. They provide them with small amounts of cocaine. Some of that cocaine is destined for re-export by these smaller networks up to Europe. But I think we have to recognize that a significant amount of it makes its way onto the local market. And this can breed significant addiction problems. And this isn't the only place that we've seen this. So for example, if you look at how it is that Mexican drug trafficking organizations got powerful in the 1980s and 1990s, it was the same peel-off aspect. If you look at why it is, for example, that a crack cocaine epidemic emerged in some areas of coastal West Africa in the last decade, it was the same peel-off aspect. So the danger of peel-off on what it can do both to the trafficking networks, the local trafficking networks, as well as to local consumption patterns is quite real. And where is government response targeted at the moment across the region? Is it at producers or traffickers or consumers? Well, I would say it's, it's targeted at all three, but the problem is not who it's targeted at, but what it is. And what it is right now is overwhelmingly a law enforcement focus. And so law enforcement personnel look to arrest producers. They look to arrest traffickers. They look to arrest consumers. There's little consideration of the issue of, of narcotics in North Africa, for example, as a public health concern or a public health emergency. 
And certainly there is very limited funding that is applied towards the rehabilitation of addicts, the creation of rehab facilities. And I think that this is a big problem. If you view everything through a law enforcement focused approach, you miss the potential for actually designing interventions that will have a significant positive impact for those that are often most vulnerable, especially those that are addicted to various types of drugs in the region. So in your view, in a kind of worst case scenario, where is this situation headed? The increasing addiction issues in the Maghreb could lead to full-blown full-bore public health crises in the region and possibly the spread of various secondary public health impacts such as HIV AIDS in the case of injection drug use, but other issues as well. Coupled with the corrosive impact of increased high-level drug trafficking through the region on governments, on their security forces, on their administration, and the potential for that to result in a, a weakening of these governments' abilities to really effectively police the criminal activities that are going on within their borders. And I see this as, as something that's a particular concern, given the experience of Latin America. Would a pan-Maghreb strategy be the best way to deal with the issues you've presented? I think a, a pan-Maghreb strategy is certainly the ideal. None of these trafficking networks operate in one country individually. Rather, they operate across the borders. And the borders for them are less hard bars than they are points of opportunity and points for profit. The problem, however, is that there remain significant political disagreements between countries in the Maghreb that to date have stymied even well-meaning and well-designed efforts at law enforcement collaboration on issues that are arguably of, of shared concern. So, Right now, the largest bar to a pan-Maghreb strategy, the largest bar to cooperation between the countries of the Maghreb, is really one of high-level politics and longer-standing disagreements that have little to do with the present moment. I think once those are surmounted, and I am hopeful that they, they can be, you can actually see a, a rapid movement towards some sort of shared operational and strategic response to this challenge. That was Matt Herbert, a senior analyst with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. That's all we've got time for on this first episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. This is the first of many from the Global Initiative. The GI has a unique position to bring you expert analysis on the illicit economy in Africa. And that's why we'll be bringing you new episodes twice a month. For each episode, we'll focus on a specific region of the continent covered by the GI's observatories. Next week, we'll be focusing on the illicit economy in East and Southern Africa. For our discussion on North Africa and the Sahel, I'd like to thank our guests, Alexandra Bish, Matt Herbert, Rebecca Murray, and Mark Mikalev. If you want to check out more content on illicit economies in Africa, such as policy briefs like Breaking the Vicious Cycle, Cocaine Politics in Guinea-Bissau, or our latest Risk Bulletin, head over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net. There are plenty of publications to get your teeth into. You can also find other podcasts based around organized crime, such as Deep Dive, the last episode concentrated on the ongoing insurgency in northern Mozambique and how that is impacting the illicit economy in the region. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening. <laughs>